Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And if you do any work in education, especially around equity, diversity, inclusion, this episode's for you. First things first, I just want to thank everyone who tuned into the last episode, um, realizing after putting it out just how personal that narrative was. Um, I appreciate the people who reached out to me, those who listened to the episode, those who shared it, and those who are starting a dialogue around what Black maternal health looks like and how we can transform some of those outcomes. Y'all are the real MVPs. And I'm just grateful that there are people who are engaging in that dialogue, who are willing to do the difficult work to remove the the barriers that continue to exist for black moms and people who want to bring children up in this world. And I think today's episode is perhaps a perfect uh, tie in, if you will, as we continue to evolve. And what I'm realizing as I'm going through my own therapeutic journey, there's just things that I've had to come to terms with as far as my life and my experience and who I was growing up and not project those things onto my children, whether that's my fears, um, the things that I want them to do as far as career. I think and far too often in our communities, you know, you have a child who has promise. The next thing you know, you want them to be the next doctor, to be the next judge. And it's unfair. But today's episode really digs into our black boys and how we are not nurturing them in a way that is conducive to their future. As you know, I am the father of three black boys and two of them are school age. And I'm starting to realize more and more just how much they have to experience and endure as children. And these are things that I didn't pay as much attention to myself, especially while I was experiencing it or while I was in grade school or wherever I was. But I'm I'm starting to see more clearly just how instances of discrimination and racism play a key role in how they feel about themselves. Something that my wife started doing um, when the boys started going to school, even before school in, in daycare, we would drop them off in the morning and we would read a devotional. And because we thought it was just important to to cover our kids before they left the house. And so now you fast forward a few years later, I'm standing at the bus stop with one of my boys and we always do affirmations before we before he gets on the bus. And he, typically I ask for three and they can range from I'm confident, I'm brave, I'm safe, I'm intelligent, all of those things. But what I've started doing now is asking him at the conclusion, do you believe it? Because it's, it's one thing to say those things, and that's what I'm, what I'm partially working through now. But do you actually believe the things that you are saying? Because I'm, I'm, it's becoming more and more clear to me just how the world outside of our home can impact my child's experience. And I've got a few, few stories that I, I want to share, just things that have come up that have really helped open my eyes to what role I should be playing as parent what role I should be playing as change maker and disruptor when it comes to educational inequities. 
So I want to start a while back uh, with my, my son who is on the autism spectrum. I've mentioned him before, um, seven years old. And I'm getting more comfortable talking about these things openly. And what I've observed in various educational spaces, and we can go back to daycare, actually. And so all of these things being new to us, the world of autism, um, trying to create sensory friendly spaces and trying to advocate for our children in a way that puts him first and his needs first. And I will be the first to admit, I still struggle in many, many cases. And church is a really good one because my hesitance in many cases of going to church is because I'm concerned that my child will want to stem during a quiet moment or he may start to make noise when people are trying to pray and then everyone's looking at us. And it's just an uncomfortable feeling. But I'm realizing more and more that that's more my own ableism getting in the way of what could be a good experience for all of us. But what happened at one point in time, we were trying to understand why certain behaviors were taking place. And I realized with just about any child, if you give them the attention that they're seeking, they're going to continue to do the behavior despite your best interests or at least despite what you would like them to do. And my son had a habit of running out of a particular door at the daycare center. And we received a phone call, uh, received a note just saying, hey, you know, just as far as our child's safety, want to be aware of these things, we want to have a meeting. And we that's something that we've never shied away from. Let's have a meeting. Let's pull all the people together, whether it's early on, where whether it's its ABA text, whomever. We want to be coordinated in, in our efforts. And that's something I've learned through social work, through having um, wraparound services. You want to have everyone at the table for the sake of one continuity, but also a shared vision for what this should look like. And so we get on the call and they start talking about what they want to put in his record. Um, talking about how if he continues to do these things that he's going to be expelled from daycare. Now, daycare is an interesting place because I'm paying for you to watch my child while I'm in work. And granted, I understand that that might present some safety issues. Absolutely. But the threat of expulsion, because you can't create a safety plan that works well, that's just unfair. And I think it, it opens up the dialogue around intersectionality, these multiple identities and how they converge and also how their oppressions come together as well. And so you have this black child who's now been labeled as perhaps difficult to work with. And now we want to expel him from daycare because we don't have the patience or the tools or the resources to keep him safe. And you can even fast forward now to our, our IEP processes. And we had a conversation where they labeled my son as sneaky in his IEP. And for those who don't know, IEP is an individualized education plan. Typically children on um, and special education programs receive these IEPs so that they can have the services that they rightfully deserve in the classroom, whether it's OT, um, he's had speech therapy, all of these things. 
these additional accommodations that they rightfully deserve. And as we're going through this report, the teacher points out that my son is sneaky. And so I can't go forward in the conversation at all because I'm totally distracted by this fact that someone has labeled my child. And so we, I, I've gotten really comfortable with the, hey guys, let's, let's pause for a second. Let's, let's take a step back because I'm feeling uncomfortable. Anybody else feeling uncomfortable? Uh, one of my mentors taught me that and I've never let it go. But it's, it's in these ways that early on, we introduce our children to a culture that does not care for them, that is not willing to protect them, that keeps them in oppressed states. And again, every day, it becomes more and more clear to me that this is reality. I grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s in Detroit public schools where most of my teachers were black, most of my classmates were black, and now raising children in a suburban environment and there's more diversity, especially when it comes to um, being just more white teachers, more white professionals who may not necessarily have experience working with black youth. I'm, I'm just attuned to all of these things and just the background that I have around mental health, around public health and, and equities and disparities. All of these things come together in ways that I'm, I'm paying attention to and I'm trying to raise the alarm about, hey, are we creating safety for our black boys? And so the other part to that is uh, I have two boys who are seven years old still having experiences of discrimination and bias. And recently we had an incident um, where one of his classmates told the bus driver that my son had a gun in his backpack. And I am not one who plays in that kind of way. We don't have weapons in our home. We don't we don't talk about weapons. And so for this, these allegations, because that's what we'll call them to come up, it was quite troubling. He and that information was routed from the bus driver to the teacher, to the principal, who then called my wife. And my son doesn't know what a gun is, aside from maybe a, a blaster of some sort on a video game because he plays like Minecraft and Roblox, but we, we don't we don't even play like that. And I find myself as my, my wife is sharing the information from the principal, like I'm, I'm trembling because I'm just so upset because one, I know it's false. But two, why would someone say that about my son? My wife goes up to the school. She has a conversation with the principal, raises this idea of, well, why didn't you call the other person's parents and that person being white they didn't even investigate his backpack to see yet my wife is standing there because there are allegations against my black son and all i could do was sit there and want to go to the school myself and just hug him i just wanted to wrap my arms around him and let him know that this world is cruel but i got you and we see this every day I'm fortunate and privileged. I have advanced degrees. I can get on the phone, and which I did. I called the superintendent and said, hey, this is unacceptable. We have a tendency to believe white children. 
And we have a tendency to go out of our way to demean, to accuse, and to make black children feel bad about themselves. And I'm not going to go for it. And he said all the things. We'll see what happens in action. I made it very clear that my expectations were, look at the data. Look at in-school suspensions. Look at out-of-school suspensions. Tell me what the racial demographic and makeup is when it comes to those type of suspensions. I want you to look at training around white supremacy culture. I want you to tell me how are we disrupting this right to comfort that we have for white people? He couldn't explain it over the phone, but these are the expectations that I have. I want my child to know that when he goes to school, it's an environment of safety and not one that's a threat. There's no reason why in 2023, a child is exposed to, from what I last looked up, at least a black child is exposed to at least five instances of racism and discrimination daily, daily. Now you wonder why we start to see these educational outcomes that look like, well, black children are underperforming. Well, yes, because the world is performing on them the moment they step outside of the house. And then we look at other data and you see that black children are more likely to be placed in special education. Does that have anything to do with being overdiagnosed or the fact that we disproportionately diagnose black boys with oppositional defiant disorder and they're not receiving the same kind of services, the same quality of services or the same care that our white counterparts receive? Those are all things that you have to take into consideration if we're talking about creating this environment that really is conducive to supporting black boys. And you know that I have three black boys. And so one of them being very young, but I'm already concerned based on the things that I've seen with his brother, that we have yet to move the needle in creating those type of spaces. Now, I could be passive. I could step back and I could say, there's nothing that I can do about it. I'm, I'm not an educator. Or there's something that I could do as far as I am a black parent, I'm equipped with resources, I will cut into you if I have to, but I want to see that my children and other black children don't have to go through those type of persecutions. It's, it's just unfair. And when I start to have these conversations now, I'm leading with those personal narratives because for so long it was like, oh, you know, this is just what it's like. This is what it, what it's gonna, what it is. And we can't continue to operate in that particular mode. We have to take the time to say, nope, this stops here. This stops with this child. We have to transform. We have to overhaul all the things. As I continue to do work around suicide prevention, I'm watching the data, paying attention. And our black young men are dying at disproportionate rates. The act of completing suicide is now the go-to for this type of pain and trauma that they encounter. And again, it just, it raises this, this idea and this feeling for me that we have to do more. We have to move away from, you know, being resilient, the we don't cry. Like we have to start having conversations around what is emotional intelligence? What do we do to increase our resilience and our protective factors? What are the assets that we have within ourselves and within our communities that will keep us whole? 
And I'm, I'm looking forward to more of that dialogue. Um, I've been leading in part our state suicide prevention commission for the last four years. It's been a really um, eye-opening experience, especially because I'm not a suicidologist. I'm a policy person, but I'm able to enter into the spaces that say the same thing that we talk about with social determinants of health, those apply to the social determinants of mental health. And so if you don't have access to um, quality education, you don't have access to employment opportunities, you don't have access to housing, all of those things that impact your physical health also impact your mental health. And when I'm considering now our children, right? When you have children, black boys who are dying at those rates, you have to start to ask, well, what do we do to transform those conditions? We have to start somewhere. And I think education is right for those conversations. I think public health is right for those conversations. I think it really boils down to getting out of our own way, acknowledging that we've caused harm, and then starting to really roll up our sleeves and say that we want to create spaces that are inclusive for all. And when we say that, it's not a platitude, it's not a, oh, we're only creating programs for black boys. It's creating programs for everyone because everyone benefits. All tides rise if you create programs that really address the barriers to good mental and physical health. Now, I didn't mean to get on here and have a tirade. I didn't mean to get on here and get too personal. I've been treating these as my testimony. I've got therapy tomorrow, so there's more to talk about. But I wanted to really lay the framework and the foundation for if we want to be the society that I know we all can be, it's all going to start with acknowledging that harm, but also realizing that it doesn't have to stop at the acknowledgement. It's no different than when I call out um, government for saying we've declared racism a public health crisis. That's great. Where's the money? Where's the plan? Where are the resources? All of those things are necessary to operationalize these, these grandiose ideas. And so if you want to reach zero suicide, and I want to reach zero suicide, especially for Black boys, we've got to do some things differently. Really quick, before we log off, wanted to let you all know that I am serving as one of the closing plenaries for the Michigan Social Determinants of Health Summit. Um, I'm going to drop the link in the description Please check it out if you get a chance. Um, I'm talking about embracing the bold when we talk about the future of public health and social determinants. I'm really trying to bring together what my vision is for public health within our state. I believe that there's um, a great opportunity that we have with some recent funding to really overhaul a lot of our systems to fill a lot of the gaps that we've had for, for years and also to really start thinking about innovation um, we experienced a significant amount of turnover over the last three years, four years, especially with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. But we, again, we have an opportunity, a unique one that we don't know if it will ever come back. So we've got to start thinking about public health differently. And one of those ways is to be bold. So stay tuned for more information on that. Three things I need you to do. I need you to like this episode because I want more people to see it. I want more people to see Equity Matters podcast, especially on their feeds. The algorithm is not kind to all of us. I've talked about that in previous episodes. I need you to comment. What did you learn about this episode? What did it force you to think about, to consider? Can you relate to anything that I shared? 
And the last thing I want you to do is subscribe because I want to build community of people who are like minded, who are committed to the causes of seeking out justice, those who want to create equity, who understand that it's hard work, but it can be done. So please like, comment and subscribe. And of course, you already know equity matters.